Kia ora and welcome to the Female Career Podcast. My name's Anna Johnston and I work as a leadership and career coach for women. I'm looking forward to sharing with you an inspiring collection of career stories of a diverse range of women of Aotearoa New Zealand. I hope that by listening to these stories, you'll feel inspired in your own career. If you do enjoy the story, please head along to our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we have lots more stories of wonderful Kiwi women and their careers. We'd also love you to subscribe to our podcast so that you have all the episodes at your fingertips. And please do tell your friends and family about it too. For now, though, I hope you enjoy listening to this career story. I'm really looking forward to speaking today with Dr. Aisha Verrill and hearing more about her career journey. Aisha is an infectious diseases physician and also a senior lecturer with Otago Medical School. She's an expert on tuberculosis, vaccines and antibiotics and completed a PhD on immunity in tuberculosis based on fieldwork undertaken in Indonesia. She also completed a fellowship in infectious diseases at the National University Hospital in Singapore. Aisha became a household name in early 2020 when she was asked by the New Zealand government to review its COVID contact tracing strategy. She'd accept to pursue her next career steps in the public eye with a move to politics, joining the Labour Party high up the party list in readiness for the 2020 election. I'm really looking forward to hearing her reflections on her career today. Kia ora Aisha and thank you very much for joining me. Kia ora Anna, thank you for having me. You're welcome. So the first question I would love to ask is if you think back to when you were a child or maybe even a teenager, what did you want to do or be when you grew up? I had very little idea about the type of career I have now. And I think if there was one thing I landed on that captured my imagination when I was a young child, I wanted to be a marine biologist. And that, that's funny to look back on. I imagine I got the idea from TV, you know, watching Jacques Cousteau or Our World or something like that. But I think it was also fueled by having had some early parts of my life in the Maldives. I had lived there when I was three and five. And so there are these tiny islands in the Indian Ocean, all coral with amazing reefs. And even though I was little, just when you're a preschooler, you can pop goggles on and see beautiful, diverse coral and tropical fish and all that sort of thing. So that was what captured my imagination. And of course, I'm not doing anything to do with bio, well, to do with the oceans, but I think some of what's uh, remained in my life is that sense of wanting to do something which had a dimension of exploration and adventure. And that's what's motivated me, particularly in the scientific parts of my work. Super interesting. And I like the way you talk about your childhood, perhaps influencing that with um, having spent that time in the Maldives. But also there is still that, as you say, exploration, scientific angle to what you were maybe thinking about. So talk me through then, how did you end up in, uh, in medicine? I think um, as a teenager, I enjoyed all the activities at school and not just academic, sport as well, cultural activities. But I was good at science and was motivated to try and find a, a career in science. But I also loved English. And I think if maybe you had asked me in sixth form, I would have thought I'd end up becoming a, a writer or a critic or a journalist or something like that. So I think in the end, the attraction of medicine was that you got to use all of those skills. You know, you were using science, but also communication is a really big big part of that. And that that's actually stayed true throughout the career in medicine. I've never felt boxed into a, a narrow area. There's always been scope to use basically all, all the skills you have in your in your skill set. I've always felt like it's really drawn on a broad part of me the whole way through. 
Yes, I can imagine. People think of that science background, but actually, yes, fundamentally, so many communication elements in it. And within medicine itself is even a very broad field. What was it about infectious diseases that particularly appealed? Yeah, so it was not because I was the best student at microbiology um, in terms of the sort of um, basic science that underpins infectious diseases. It was more that when I was working as a doctor, so as a junior doctor, I noticed that that I felt comfortable with some of the working with patients with infectious diseases. And, you know, that was something that I was good at. And infectious diseases asks you to think beyond the clinic room to what the patient's everyday life is like. And to do that, uh, to be able to get a story, to understand what um, risk a person faces for infectious diseases, you really have to be able to break down all the barriers about talking about sensitive issues. To understand if someone has a risk of HIV, I have to be comfortable having a conversation with them about their sex life. Uh, To know if someone who I've diagnosed with typhoid is safe to return to work, I have to be able to understand if they're doing paid or unpaid work as a food preparer. Uh, To know how to manage someone's hepatitis C and I have to be able to ask about whether they're using uh, needles or sharing needles. So that's the sort of thing that I felt I was good at and um, able to approach people in a non-judgmental way. And so that's how I landed here, I guess. Really interesting. And as you said, again, that broader set of skills coming into medicine. And talk me through the the first few years of your career. What were some of the highlights and, and challenges as well? The first several years of of a medical career is what people in the community call being a junior doctor and uh, we call being a a house officer or or resident. And that's a really tough job. It's tough because of the long hours involved. And when I was um, a junior doctor, it wouldn't be unusual to work a 65-hour week, then do two 15-hour shifts on the weekend and then repeat the long, uh, long week again. So that that was pretty tough. That was the hardest thing, the hours. But what the highlights were really, well, for a start, you were all in it together as other junior doctors, and you were each other's comrades, really. And if you needed help with something, you'd be able to call a, a friend up and say, how do you do this? And that really built some... Um, friendships which have been really long-standing for me. And then the other satisfying part is that as time goes on, you get increasing independence, being able to initiate things yourself for helping your patients. And and that's where you start to feel, you know, really like you're making a difference. Uh, You start out with a lot of tasks that are administrative and then gradually get given more tasks that actually help people in a hands-on way. And that's the most fulfilling part of it. Mm, Yes, I can imagine. And you would see that growth. But I can also imagine those long hours would have been pretty challenging as well. So from there, you've done a couple of stints overseas, if I'm right, in terms of both your PhD and also some work over in Singapore. Yeah. And when I was 30, I went overseas, firstly, to work in Singapore to complete my infectious diseases training at a um, hospital called National University Singapore. And that was a really great experience there. They have obviously a lot of challenging infectious diseases problems. They are in a tropical area, but they also have a great system 
and uh, laboratory system, that means as someone trying to learn, I'm able to have my learning supported by a really good laboratory. It's very hard to learn tropical medicine in a place without a laboratory. So that was a, a really exciting experience being there. And the support for my learning was, for my specialization was really good. As it happens, one, the professor there is a man called Dale Fisher, who recruited me. And he also made sure I got really great opportunities to train. And one of them was while I was in Singapore, he sent me on a week-long simulated outbreak response course in Cambodia, where the organizers ran a pretend outbreak and you had to, with your team, go and try and identify the cause and um, initiate the response to the outbreak. So that was a really amazing. And I didn't actually know that it would ever prove to be useful in my, in my career, but it was a, a great opportunity. And then after Singapore, my partner and I briefly came back to New Zealand and we had our baby who is now seven years old. And then we went to do my PhD in Indonesia. That was when our daughter was just two months old that we arrived in Indonesia. Mm. So that was, that was a really interesting experience too. And I was there doing my field work for almost two years. And it has all the good things about being a, a PhD, like um, your deadline is three years away. So uh, that's nice for when you have a young family, you're not uh, running around with immediate deadlines like you are when you're a doctor. But it was also a bit of a leap into the unknown. Me and my partner were both both women taking our, our family to Indonesia, not really knowing how we'll be received. But in the end, everything was actually really lovely and um, probably helped by the fact we had a baby and everyone was so friendly to us and, and our child. I think a lot of people find that if they move to a new country, having a small child can be a helpful way to break the ice. But, but, I mean, fascinating as well to hear about the outbreak response simulation. And you never know what parts of your career may be useful in the the future. Really, really useful. So really interesting to see how that's come back in recent times. Yeah, and that was also case in Indonesia too, because in Indonesia I was running a study on tuberculosis And the method that we used was to study people who um, were contacts of TB cases. And the focus of my PhD was about of those contacts who were immune to TB. But the method that I used, all of that contact tracing and defining how to run a system in a high quality way in a really challenging environment for getting good contact tracing outcomes, that was the background method I used for recruiting my Um, for recruiting to that study. And that's really informed my work on COVID as well. It's super interesting, as I say, to just see how those pockets in time, even though they're a few years ago, actually can come back and be super helpful all all of a sudden. In terms of your broader work, it's medicine, it's in the broader sphere of health. What is it about working in the health sector that you really love? It's really amazing to be able to work with people, patients with uh, when they're ill. And obviously that's, there's some sad parts to that, but there's also some really fulfilling parts. And most of the time I see, if I meet a patient with a serious infection in hospital, they recover and I see them in a month or two in my clinic looking so much better. So usually you're part of helping people through a really difficult time or a crisis in their in their life and um, uh, helping them get get better. The other thing is, yeah, as I said, the camaraderie with other staff is amazing. And I just know so many wonderful, capable 
people who, if you were ever in a difficult situation, you'd be so grateful for them, you know, who are my staff, other doctors and nurses who are my colleagues at the hospital. And then part of my job is um, teaching in a medical school as well. So that's what's nice about that is you give your lectures when they're fourth and fifth year students, you see them gradually coming to terms with this. And then you can go on the wards and a year or two later, you'll see them as junior doctors. And when they, they're working on in other areas or maybe they're doing their surgical rotation and they'll call you to ask a question about antibiotics, it's just wonderful to see how over time you're contributing to people who are going to have such a big impact on their community in a really positive way. It strikes me often when I speak to people who work in the broader health field There is that piece about making a difference, having an impact, helping people that often sits underneath you. And then talk to me about, you've talked a little bit about some of the challenges that maybe you faced in your career. What have been some of your toughest career moments or biggest challenges that you faced? Yeah, it's hard to think of any one one particular challenge, but definitely that time when I came back from Indonesia, you know, my partner and I had to re-establish our family in in New Zealand, we had a preschooler. I was finishing my thesis, which was a a giant thesis actually, (laughs) and probably in retrospect, slightly overambitious. Starting my first year as a lecturer, and that's the year where you've got to make all your materials from scratch. And also then, um, a little later, trying to start as as an infectious diseases specialist in the hospital after not having worked while I was doing my PhD. So all of those things were just, were all big challenges. And I started to, I did get quite run down physically during that time. But then on the other hand, there was no way through that other than submitting that beast of a thesis. So I'm not sure if um, having got through that, there's no, uh, there's a lesson to be learned other than um, don't do a giant thesis. But <laughs> well, there we go. That's that's probably a good lesson for a number of people. But it, it sounds like you were juggling a lot of balls and taking on new roles and, and taking on any new job can be a challenge. But as yeah. you say, the lecturer piece, having to start from scratch and writing all the material, starting in a new job in the hospital, doing your PhD and settling back into New Zealand again with a small child. Yeah, I can imagine quite full on. Yeah, I think it does make me much more, well, it shouldn't, but I think it's a fact of life that once you've been through looking after a small child, particularly a preschooler um, in those years, you are much more sympathetic to the impact it has on other people's ability to function at, at work. And, you know, obviously, I know many people who are making massive contributions as senior doctors and other colleagues who are doing that. But it is a really tough time and just every little bit of support you can offer a colleague who's going through that and being understanding about new parents in the workplace. I think that's one of my takeaways from that. Absolutely. I think I'm a mum of three myself and I think having kids made me really appreciate for others having to try and manage and balance all of that on top of doing work is not easy. As you say, you do develop definitely some empathy there for for others. You still have a a full-on life, a busy life, and potentially quite busy at the moment, I can imagine, in the lead up to the election. How do you maintain some sort of balance within your life? Yeah, this is really important. And I think the answer is there's not just one thing I can do. I've realised there's not one thing I can do that will solve this problem. It is, a pro- it is an issue of constantly working on it. And, and I try and be quite diligent and 
self-aware about my rest and doing um, fun things. One of my tendencies is to, I get quite uh, motivated by things by being around other people. That's what makes me really enthusiastic in, in my work, but that is not a recipe that goes alongside resting. <laughs> um, so I need to make sure that I think about doing um, both of those things and be conscientious about that. And one of the things in medicine is I've always thought through that through the lens of my safety as a doctor. When I'm on call, yes, I do have to be really strict with myself about going to bed on time and, and that sort of thing because you don't know if you're going to be woken up at, at 4 a.m. with a telephone call. So I think it takes constant work. So I'm you know, constantly making sure that I've got a holiday planned at some point or and making sure I'm doing my fair bit of raising our, our daughter, even though it's a busy time for, for me at the moment and making sure that there's something uh, fun in the week and it's not just a whole slog through trying to get uh, academic papers written or something like that. I like that kind of rest and fun things, and fun things are important as well uh, in life. But as you say, balancing out with rest and then that, yeah, really, I remember um, years ago we were talking about work and I used to work for a chocolate company and we always used to talk about, look, it's, it's not life and death. And then you think about actually people working in healthcare and... The, the reality of, yes, needing to be on top of your game because the, you are directly impacting other people. Yeah, really interesting perspective. When you, we've talked a bit about some of your challenges. When you look back at your career, what are some of your proudest moments? Yeah, I'm pretty proud of the work I did on contact tracing a couple of months ago. I think that was a really nice example of the different skills that I had. I guess that's saying that I liked the work I was able to do because it drew on all all aspects of me. Like I, I do have a sort of epidemiologist's highly technical knowledge of what's involved with contact tracing. So I was able to make a performance assessment framework for our contact tracing system. Over the last five years, I've had a lot of engagement with the health system on other issues like tuberculosis, contact tracing, and I'm a deputy chair of a district health board. So I was able to try and put some of my advice in the context of the health system and understand it, how it would play out. And also just knowledge and relationships that helped me come up with good advice and the task of communicating that to the country through the media afterwards. Yeah, I think the reports was um, taken up by the Ministry of Health, but also used as an example of a good approach internationally. And WHO has asked me to present on it to other countries. Yeah, I think that would probably be um, the main one of the things that I point to that I've been able to do with my expertise, but also other skills. Mm, and rightly so, and um, that you should be proud of it. And you know, thank you for stepping into that. It's made It made a massive difference to millions of people in New Zealand. So thank you. That's all right. And I, I should be careful to say that doesn't mean where we've landed is perfect and we should keep our eyes open to what's happening internationally and in case it needs to be improved, we should always be doing that. Mm, and I think we've seen that obviously with the with, with all sorts of things happening all over the world and particularly obviously Australia close to home and the, mm. the spikes there. Then I wanted to come on to your next career move, which was an interesting one. And I remember when we first get, got in touch, you said, oh, how about we speak in July? Because there'll be some new developments to speak about. And now obviously we know what that is. Um, that you, it looks like you'll be making a move into politics. So what prompted, what's prompted that? Yeah, so I think 
At some level, I've been involved in political things for a while, like I did run last year in our district health board elections and as a Labour Party candidate and get elected to our health board. But obviously, stepping up to national politics is a whole other level. And I think the motivation was really about what had happened during COVID. And the sense I had that it's great to be able to make a contribution as a scientist, and I was really pleased to be able to do that. But a lot of what I sensed made the difference to New Zealand's response was not just good scientific advice, but also the leadership that we had from our government. And I felt I'd be able to make a contribution to that continuing because COVID is not just the last few months that we've been through. Um, COVID will be part of our reality, at least for the next term of government and maybe beyond. There will be these issues about the border, about testing, about contact tracing, about um, a possible vaccine and about treatment. So I think that was one thing. But also through COVID, what we saw was changes in the health system, which I think really reflect opportunities for us to start doing things better for people. So we've seen even just in contact tracing an acceptance that it was no longer okay to have 12 different public health units each doing their own thing, running their own data systems. We were going to have a nationally coordinated approach to this. And that national coordination has not at all been accepted. That should be what we're doing by previous governments. So I see the current crisis has created an opportunity for us to argue for and on better coordination in the health system and particularly where it comes to preventive medicine. And I guess that's really my passion is to see not just us having uh, great hospitals that can treat people who are ill, but doing all the things we can to run um, programs in the community that keep that prevent illness, including vaccination and other screening programs, and also making sure that we have a healthy environment. Mm, yep. And it's lovely for me to hear that passion there. And that's still, even from the piece that you talked about earlier in your career, about not only the curiosity, but that desire to somehow have impact as well coming through. And it looks like you're probably the next few years may well be mapped out for you in terms of your career. But have you got any thoughts in more the medium to longer term about where your career might head? I think um, standing for parliament is accepting that you can't really have definite plans. Mm. <laughs> then that uh, at least every three years, your plans need to be evaluated by the public. So I guess we'll see. And no, I don't really, I don't really know. I think overall, I'm very okay with um, taking some risks and having some uh, stepping outside of my comfort zone at the moment. I'm just waiting to see what happens with the election, obviously working very hard to make sure we um, do as well as possible and then see what the opportunities are after that. Mm, great. And then, if I may, you've already shared some pieces of your your career advice and or things you've learned across your career. Have you got any other career advice for other girls or women? Yeah, I think I think one of the things that's been really important to me is to, I think other people might call this networking, but I don't. I call it making friends. And I guess I made friends even at university. You know, I was made friends with some of my lecturers and all through my career I have. And I've always found it easy to go back to people and ask when I encounter a 
a problem about how they would approach that. And I'm not proud about, um, not too proud to ask people for advice. And I do that all the time. And that's been a really good support. So as it happened, when I was doing my PhD, 14, you know, maybe it was 10 years after I was an undergraduate, I pulled back lecturers who gave me advice about how to do things. When we were in the middle of all the COVID dramas, I was on the phone to people who had who I hadn't been in touch with in quite a while about various aspects of the response and how to get the science right for that. So I think I feel having a, a network around you of people who you have a nice, trusting and open relationship with where you can receive advice and benefit from it is, has been really important um, to me. And then I think the other thing I would say is, in general, people respect people who are true to themselves. And I think sometimes I hear from some of the students that I teach or junior doctors who I supervise that they're concerned that they'll be punished for sticking their neck out about things. And I guess we definitely work in very hierarchical places and in in medicine and academia, uh, and I don't want to minimise that. But there's also a lot of allies in the establishment now, and I think generally if you're feeling like you've got something um, that maybe you feel like you're not being treated well or that you want your work to take a different direction but you can't uh, raise it, actually I think making sure that you've got the support you need to be able to raise it safely is nine times out of ten the best strategy. And once again, that goes back to making sure you've got good relationships and support around you. Wonderful advice. And that, um, that I love the reframing of not networking, just making friends. And I think a lot of the women that I speak with do have this almost visceral reaction to the idea of networking. It feels very political, but actually, as you talk about it, that just actually building relationships, getting to know people, calling out for support and advice when you need it can be hugely valuable in your career. Aisha, thank you so much for sharing your career journey and story. And I think probably there's quite a few people now very pleased you didn't go down the marine biologist route and instead ended up helping our and support our healthcare system. And best of luck for the, the coming months. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Anna. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Female Career Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more inspiring stories of women of Aotearoa and their careers, subscribe to the Female Career Podcast via Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you like to listen so that you never miss a story. You can also take a look at our website, thefemalecareer.com, where we feature the stories. And if you subscribe to our mailing list, you can have career advice and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. Thanks for your support, and I look forward to you joining us again soon.